Well, it is 9.30. We have a, a big crowd here today. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and get started because <clears throat> I have so much material to try to cram in. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> that uh, we're going to start on time and maybe set the uh, tone for the remaining lessons for this coming month. <clears throat> so um, we'll just let people filter in as they as they come. Grab one of those uh, sheets back there. <clears throat> okay, let's um, let's pray, and we will get started. Camilla, there's a sheet in the very back if you'd want to grab one of those. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you that you have brought us here. You've given us the health to be here. We thank you that we have uh, a day in which we can set aside and focus on you and uh, worship you. We pray for your blessing upon uh, all the uh, worship activities and other activities of this day. And we pray for your blessing upon this hour that we might learn from um, your truth and that we might be uh, confirmed in your truth and strengthened in your truth mm-hmm. and have the uh, have the discernment that we will need to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. So bless this time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This class is entitled Theological Paradigms and it's the third part of the series. The series that Pastor Mark has uh, set up his introduction to theology, and he dealt with the first third, that is the practice of theology, and then our brother John Hogue dealt with the uh, second third, which is the process of theology. He finished that last week. And today we begin with what uh, Pastor Mark has called paradigms, theological paradigms. It might seem a little strange to use that terminology. What do we mean by uh, theological paradigms? Theological paradigm is, I'm going to define it this way, is a set of ideas or beliefs that comprise one's theological perspectives, faith, and system. So it's basically a set of beliefs. It includes the beliefs that make up a theological viewpoint and that distinguish one theological viewpoint from another. So, for example, is what comprises and distinguishes liberal theology from Roman Catholic theology, from Pentecostal theology, or Reformed theology, or a number of other theologies. So that is what we mean by theological paradigm, just simply a particular theological viewpoint. Now, these lessons that we're going to be discussing in the next month, the month of February, um, Lesson 10 has to do with evangelical and Baptist and Reformed theological paradigms. And in describing that, we are going to be telling and describing who Heritage Baptist Church is. Heritage Baptist Church is evangelical, Baptist, and Reformed. We'll, we'll be talking about that today. Next week, we're going to talk about the theological paradigms that could be characterized as non-evangelical traditions. The following week, the third week, those that are non-Baptistic traditions. And then the final week uh, will be the non-reformed traditions. As you can see, there's a lot to cover 
in just one month, and so it's going to have to be a uh, not even a 30,000 foot level. I think it's going to be more like a 50,000 foot level um, viewpoint of these various um, theological paradigms. So why are we going to have this series talking about all these various uh, theologies? Why should I want to know what liberation theology is or feminist theology or Roman Catholic theology? Say, I'm, I'm not a theological liberal. I'm not a feminist. I'm not a Roman Catholic. So what's the point? Well, I do intend to um, give you at least a brief answer this morning in just a few words. The quick answer to this is to avoid error and to mature in Christ. That's why we want to know about these things. However, there's a lot more to say about that. And so there's more to come in the uh, weeks ahead. In particular, next week, I plan to go more in depth on why we would want to spend time discussing these various theological paradigms. But we don't have time for that this morning, so we're going to uh, move ahead. Who is HBC? What characterizes Heritage Baptist Church in distinction from various other theological paradigms? Well, first of all, Heritage Baptist Church is evangelical. What is evangelical theology? Well, I think I considered who my audience here is, and I think most of you know what evangelical theology is. And so rather than my going through all of the details on that, I gave you the handout. And if you haven't picked one up, then go ahead and and do that. I'm not going to go through all the details of what evangelical theology is, Because, as I say, I think you each know that, and I don't have time to cover all the things that I need to cover. But basically, evangelical theology holds to those cardinal doctrines that must be believed to be saved and to be uh, considered truly Christian. It is rooted in Scripture, and uh, it believes that, um, and and the things that are held by evangelical theology cannot contradict Scripture. Pastor Mark has made this distinction in his lesson in uh, recent weeks. Evangelicals do distinguish between what are called cardinal doctrines and secondary doctrines and tertiary doctrines. Cardinal doctrines simply meaning that which is essential, what must be believed to be saved, and that's what's on your sheet for the most part. There may be a little bit of an exception when it comes to some of the areas in in, uh, the end times or eschatology. But for the most part, what's on that sheet, that handout, is what is essential to be believed to be saved. Then there are secondary doctrines, which are significant, but they don't determine your salvation. They do separate different churches, such as a Baptist church from a Presbyterian church. And um, these cannot contradict the the, uh, cardinal doctrines. And then there are third-level doctrines, and Pastor Mark has done a good job of describing those, so we're not going to go into detail on that. That includes the doctrine of God, the Trinity, God the Son, Scripture, humanity and sin, salvation, the Holy Spirit, the Church, the end times, various end time views, and the resurrection. Those are some of the major cardinal doctrines that are included in evangelical theology. So that's all I'm going to say about that. I think most of you are already pretty familiar with what evangelical theology is. So let's go on to discuss what is Baptist theology, because Heritage Baptist Church is not only evangelical, but it is also Baptist. So what is distinctive of Baptist theology? Well, first of all, the first thing that um, I want to highlight that is uh, a distinguishing doctrine of Baptist theology is that we 
as Baptists believe in a regenerate church membership, regenerate church membership, that those who are members of the church should be regenerated. The local church is to consist of persons who are confessing faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, we recognize that as uh, humans, our judgment is fallible, that we cannot see the heart, and therefore we can't actually see if a person's heart has been regenerated. So in order to determine that, we look for a credible profession of faith. We look for a profession of faith in Jesus Christ that is believable. Now, somebody might say, well, because you can't see whether or not uh, a person's heart is really ge- regenerated, then how can we hold that up as a, as a criterion? Why, why is that legitimate to have that as a criteria for um, church membership? Well, I believe that Jesus himself, and they would say, well, you, you'll make mistakes and, and you'll be wrong sometimes. Well, I believe that Jesus himself accounted for that and expected that, in fact, because he instituted church discipline. Part of the reason for church discipline is to deal with cases where a once credible profession of faith becomes so no longer. And so that's the whole purpose, or not the whole purpose, but that is a significant purpose of church discipline. So Jesus recognizes that in the church, humans are not going to be able to see the heart of a person and determine if their heart is truly regenerate. He only expects us as a church to determine whether or not their profession of faith is credible, is believable. And that's one of the characteristics of a of Baptist theology. <clears throat> so the next area of uh, Baptist theology is we believe in believer's baptism by immersion. Baptists believe baptism should follow conversion, which goes along with the first point, and only professing disciples should be baptized. That's why Jesus gave in the Great Commission the, the command, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Make disciples, then baptize them. So we believe that it's those who are converted who should be baptized, those who are professing disciples who should be baptized. And baptism should be administered by the church and by immersion in water. By the church, we simply mean it is a church ordinance. It's not something that uh, you can just go out and you, you visit some town and you're having lunch with somebody and you win them to Christ and you say, okay, let's go down to find a local swimming pool and I'm going to baptize you. No, this is a church ordinance. It's to be administered by the church and it's to be administered by immersion in water. That means that we reject, as Baptists, we reject infant baptism. Now, we recognize also that baptism neither saves a person nor guarantees their future salvation, but it is an outward sign to the person baptized as well as to the church and to the world of his being a disciple of Christ because Jesus said that we are to baptize disciples, make disciples and then baptize them. So believer's baptism by immersion is one of the distinctives of Baptist theology. And then thirdly, local church autonomy. Baptists believe that there is no ecclesiastical authority over the local church. No ecclesiastical authority, no other church body that has higher authority than the local church. 
While local churches may and do form associations or conventions for their mutual fellowship and in love and edification and counsel, yet these associations do not have ecclesiastical jurisdiction over the churches to impose their censures or their judgments on the churches or their officers. It might sound a little complicated, but it simply means that there is no body that is above the authority of our local church here or any other local church. Fourthly, Baptists believe in the priesthood of all believers. Yes. Sure. On your baptism thing there, um, how do you argue against how the Philip and the Ethiopian think that there was really a church there? Um, basically, I would, I would argue that at that point, um, local churches <laughs> had, uh, were just in the process of being formed. Um, the question is, what about the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch baptizing somebody? They were just in the process of being formed, and he was going off to another country. And so um, Philip was, uh, I think, representative of the church at that point, but it was at such an early stage in the life of the church that there wasn't really a local church there to do the baptizing. So, but as the church developed, um, eventually that came about, and thus the local church becomes the um, the place where baptism is to be administered. Okay, the priesthood of all believers. Every Christian, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, has full and free access to God. That's what the priesthood of all believers is about. There's no special class of people who mediate the knowledge and presence and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. And all believers have the right and authority to read and interpret and apply the teachings of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, uh, the men, the man Christ Jesus. And this is something that we hold in distinction from uh, the Roman Catholic Church, which holds that there are human me- mediators that do just exactly what we say um, only Christ does, that is, they mediate the knowledge, presence of forgiveness of Christ, and thus they confess to priests. Baptists do not believe that. We believe there's one mediator between God and man. The medieval church church taught that God works exclusively, by medieval church we basically mean the Roman Catholic Church, that God works exclusively through this select class of priests as they administer the seven sacraments that they, those that they have identified as the seven sacraments. We, as Baptists, would hold just the two sacraments or two ordinances. Um, but they believe that the priests have, the, have been given the authority to, um, to exercise these seven sacraments of baptism, what they call the Eucharist, that is the Lord's Supper, confirmation, penance, extreme unction, marriage, and holy orders. We'll talk more about Roman Catholic theology in the future, but... The point here is that we believe that all believers have direct access to God. You can pray to God. You don't have to go through a priest. You can go directly to him. Isn't that a blessing, though? You know, aren't you glad that you don't have to go? Man, I, I sin enough, and I have to ask for forgiveness enough that, man, I'd be a to the priest all the time, you know? 
So we believe in the priesthood of all believers. What is Baptist theology? Well, there's a lot of varieties of Baptists, and you, I'm sure, are aware of this. Um, I'm not going to read through all the ones that I have listed there. There are a variety of Baptists, but uh, when, we come, when, it, when we talk about this Baptist theology, we are basically saying that in the main, each of these various varieties of, um, of Baptists will, will still affirm the distinctives that we've listed above and that are on the sheet um, that was in the back, because Baptists are typically... Um, Evangelical, although in our day there are some Baptists who have become not really evangelical even. So that is Baptist theology. Heritage Baptist Church is evangelical, and we are Baptist. But Heritage Baptist Church is also Reformed. What is Reformed theology? We could do a whole series of lessons on that. So again, this is going to be just a very high level of view. What is at the heart of Reformed theology? The term Reformed. Reformed theology is the distinctive doctrines and emphases held by the leading men of the 16th century Reformation in protest, Protestants, in protest against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So, Those can be summarized, certain of those key doctrines can be summarized in what is called the five solas. And we're going to look at those five solas just in overview fashion. The five solas, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. And you can check with Amy Jafisi on the pronunciation of all of those solas. But Reformed theology holds to those solas, and that's what the Reformers held to, and which, that which we also, as a Reformed church, would hold to. So what do we mean then by uh, sola scriptura? Literally, it means scripture alone. That means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in scripture. Tradition and the church are not of equal authority with Scripture. And again, that's in distinction from the Roman Catholic Church. Sola Scriptura teaches that it rests, uh, and, it, and the, uh, the doctrine of Sola Scriptura rests on the doctrine of inspiration and the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that Scripture is inerrant and, um, and therefore we can hold to this doctrine of sola scriptura. And it entails commitment to the four attributes of scripture. Now, some of you may already be familiar with these and some of you may not. And again, it would be good to spend some time talking about these in more detail. But the four attributes of scripture are the sufficiency of scripture, and I have that put in bold because that in particular applies to the doctrine of sola scriptura. But we believe in the sufficiency of scripture, the authority of scripture, the clarity, or what is sometimes called the perspicuity of Scripture, and the necessity of Scripture. Those are the four attributes of Scripture. But we believe that the Scriptures themselves are sufficient. We don't have to go outside of the Scriptures in order to know what we are to believe or how to live the Christian life. We don't have to go outside of the Scriptures to understand what we need to do to be saved. And so sola scriptura holds to the primacy of Scripture, 
over against, say, tradition or the church or the pope or any other human agency. But it does appreciate, as our brother John uh, has taught in, in, I think, the third week of his teaching, it does appreciate the legitimate role of the- theological tradition and, and um, historical theology. There is a role for that. It's just that we don't elevate that to the place of Scripture itself. The second sola of Reformed theology is sola fide, and that literally means faith alone. It means simply that justification is by faith alone and not by any human works or human merit whatsoever. Sola fide means that we are justified based on the righteousness of Christ alone, imputed to us by faith alone. How does that righteousness of Christ get to us? How does it get applied to us? By faith alone. Not by any of our works. We don't do anything. We don't work for it. It is by faith. It means that I am justified without any merit of my own, out of the sheer grace of God. And all I need to do, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, all I need to do is accept this gift of salvation with a believing heart. That's what's required for justification. It's God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, who is God, the God-man, imputed to us by faith alone. Regarding justification, then, it is the word alone that drove a wedge between Roman Catholics and the Reformers and Protestants. The Roman Catholicism held to justification based on an infused righteousness that can be increased or decreased. And I want to highlight this because this is so, it's such a blessing on the one hand to understand the truth, but it's also so important to understand the truth. But notice that the Roman Catholics would hold to justification based on an infused righteousness and a righteousness put within you. And that righteousness, because it's put within you and belongs to you, can be, it can be increased or decreased. Here is a, there's a, a, um, a Catholic website entitled Catholic Answers, and they have an article on justification. I want to give you the concluding statement after their article on justification and what they say. The quali- and they discuss Protestant view of justification, the Reformed view of justification versus the Roman Catholic view of justification. This is what it says. The qualities of justification are these. We have seen that Protestants claim the following three qualities for justification. Certainty, equality, and the impossibility of ever losing it. Notice what they say. They themselves say diametrically opposed to these qualities are those defended by the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was a council that was designed to, to, um, they thought, correct the errors of the Reformers. These are the qualities of justification based on Roman Catholic theology in the Council of Trent. Number one, uncertainty. Two, inequality. Three, immiscibility. Now, what do they mean by those three terms? The Roman Catholic view would be this, that justification is uncertain. Why is it uncertain? Why can you not be certain of your justification? Well, it's because it is by, on the basis of an infused righteousness and a righteousness put within you, but that righteousness can be increased or decreased based on how you live. 
And so if you don't live very well, then your justification is called into question. You, can never, you can't be certain about that. It is, uh, they, they say that it is unequal. They believe in the inequality of, um, of, uh, as a characteristic of justification because if your righteousness can be um, increased or decreased, then uh, John could have a better righteousness than me because he lives better than I do. And in fact, they would say that Mary never sinned and therefore she must have had one of the, the greatest righteousness. And the apostles, the apostles that were holy men, they're holier than you and I and the average common uh, believer. And so their righteousness is better than our righteousness because they've lived better than we have. So it's not equal. And then the immiscibility. Immiscibility simply means that it can be lost. Well, if I can, I can send away my justification, in other words. Protestants, on the other hand, don't hold to those three in diametrical opposition to that. Protestants hold the certainty of our justification. We can be certain that we are justified because we're justified by faith based on the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, not based on a righteousness infused in us. It is the righteousness of Christ, and we have a certainty because he has promised, God has promised that if we put our faith and trust in Christ and trust in his righteousness alone, he will justify us. Our certainty is not so much based on our faith as it is on the promise of God that he will be faithful to his promise that if we put our faith in Christ, he will justify us. So we, put, we have certainty in the promise of God. And we believe that we can, we can know, not with an absolute certainty as though we're God, but we can have a certain assurance that we are justified before God. Secondly, we also believe in the equality of justification. Oh, this is so, this is so important and such a blessing. Are you not glad that you as a believer have the same righteousness as Mary of the apostles or the greatest Christian who's ever lived because it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ? That same righteousness belongs to the weakest saint, the newest believer. He has just been saved. He has just turned to Christ. He has God has just then justified him. That justification that he has is just as sure and, and solid as the justification of the man who's lived all of his life for, for God and been a godly man all of his life. Hallelujah. So we believe that our justification is just as solid and just as good and because it's not ours. It's not something that we have increased or decreased. It is the righteousness of Christ. It's the same righteousness. So we believe in the equality of, of justification and then the impossibility of ever, loosening, of ever loosing, losing it. Once you have been justified, truly justified, once God has declared you righteous based on the righteousness of his son, not in your own righteousness, you will never lose it. He will see to that. Because he will perform, he will continue to perform that work in you that he has begun, since he is the one who has given you the faith and the repentance to begin with. And so, sola fide is a key, crucial doctrine 
I think the, it's even called the materialistic formal cause of the Reformation. Sola fide. Reformed theology also holds to solus Christus. And by the way, these uh, five solas all work together. They work in harmony with one another. They're not like separate little uh, um, uh, divisions that, have, that don't touch one another. As you can tell, they all will um, dovetail together. And so solus Christus means Christ alone. In Reformed theology, this simply means that the work of Christ and Christ alone is the ground on which the ungodly are justified. Now, we've already said that when we talked about sola fide, but it's highlighting a different aspect of our justification that is based on the work of Christ alone. No human merit at all contributes to our justification. Christ alone is the one who suffered in our place for our sin, and the perfect obedience of Christ's sinless life alone is reckoned to our account, and is the basis on which we are justified. Christ alone is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Solus Christus. Sola gratia, literally meaning by grace alone. In Reformed theology, this means that sinners are saved by the grace of God alone. In, reform, in harmony, then, with the other solas, it indicates that all of salvation is by God's grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, that any man should boast. So all of salvation is by God's grace alone, apart from human merit. It is by God's grace that we are called, by God's grace that we are regenerated, by God's grace that we are granted faith and repentance, by God's grace that we are justified, by His grace that we are preserved and eventually will be glorified. All of salvation is by God's grace. Sola gratia. The fifth, so by the way, is anybody... Can anybody tell what this little picture is? What do you think that is? What's that? John Newton? No, no. What is that that we're looking at there? Yeah, that's a musical score, right? Okay, you see the notes on there, the musical score. Um, can anybody read what's in the bottom right-hand quadrant of this uh, section of a musical score? Soli Deo Gloria. That was put by Johann Sebastian Bach on the manuscript of each of his compositions. He would pin Sola, Soli Deo Gloria or the initials SDG because he wanted to give God the glory. He didn't want to get the glory to himself for what the Lord enabled him to do musically in his compositions. Well, that is the fifth Sola in Reformed theology. Soli Deo Gloria, which literally means to the glory of God alone. In Reformed theology, this means that all the glory for our salvation goes to God alone. Now, if we contributed to our salvation by increasing or decreasing our justification, then all the glory wouldn't go to God alone, would it? At least a little bit would have to be going to us because we contributed to our justification. Reformers held and Reformed theology holds that salvation is based on 
grace alone, and God gets all the glory. There's no room for man to boast because based on the truths learned from Scripture alone, he has been saved by Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, and therefore God gets all the glory. Therefore, we as Christians should be humble and praise him for his redemptive work in us and for us and give all the glory to God alone. Sola, soli Deo Gloria, the fifth sola in the five solas of the Reformation. These are doctrines that we hold dear and believe to be the teaching of Scripture. Now, actually, I have the numbering here wrong. This should be number six. But uh, number six here, then, with regard to what is distinctive of Reformed theology, is we believe that we worship according to the regulative principle. Again, this grew out of the um, Reformation, and it is in contrast to the tradition that was developed by the Roman Catholic Church. The principle of the, the regulative principle is simply this, that the corporate worship of God must be based on specific directions of Scripture. Pretty simple. Seems pretty straightforward, and it is. The corporate worship of God must be based on specific directions of Scripture. Now, we hold to the London Baptist Confession, and the, the second London Baptist Confession states this. This is what is often called the 1689 Confession. Most of you are probably familiar with that. The 1689 Confession states it this way. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan. That seems pretty obvious under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, what you see highlighted in, le- in yellow there is, is critical. We believe that we are not to incorporate into our worship services any way, any method of worshiping that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And so we have these recognized elements of worship. The reading of the Word of God. Does the Bible tell us to read the, the Scriptures and worship? Yes, it does. Read Timothy. Preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Spoken and sung prayers. Many of our songs are actually prayers. And so we sing those prayers, but we also speak those prayers. And during our worship service, um, usually one of the pastors will lead us in prayer. It doesn't have to be led by a pastor. Um, So we have spoken and sung prayers as part of our worship. There's the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as outlined in the Word of God. There is giving. There's the celebration of the two ordinances of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the elements that we as Reformed believers hold to being the elements that ought to be in our worship services and not something beyond that. I attended a church one time that was an evangelical church and was pretty much a good church. 
But they started drifting into um, becoming what has sometimes been termed seeker-friendly. And so one time, the, um, the, quote, lead pastor of the church invited a, um, a local, well, not actually, they weren't even local. They were from a distance. But anyway, invited a uh, Christian church, a Christian school to bring a certain team in for the worship service. And uh, what they did was they started off slowly. Uh, they started off with some really worshipful, great hymns, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, um, singing about the Trinity. But then they got a little bit, <clears throat> uh, they started moving a little bit away from that and getting a little more lively. And finally, they ended up singing a song about Java. Does anybody know what Java is? Yeah, you all know what Java is, right? Copy. All right, you call coffee Java. So they had this song that they were singing all about coffee. Um, had nothing to do, no spiritual content, nothing to do with God, just coffee. And it was just there, and they had, uh, they were very good vocally, so they could take the mic and they could make the, their voices sound like coffee percolating in a cup and that sort of thing. And so <clears throat> they're, they're putting on this show for us of uh, this music with coffee percolating in a cup and singing. And it would have been fine on a Saturday night if you wanted to entertain somebody. It would have been fine. But was this the place for that? This was in the worship service. Singing songs, going from singing a song about the Holy Trinity to singing songs about coffee percolating in a, in a coffee percolator. <laughs> and then after that, they, uh, in place of a sermon... They had a guy get up, and you remember that Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first, what's on second? So they took that routine, and they did a takeoff on that, using the, the verse of Scripture, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And so they did this comedy routine about the first shall be last, the last shall be first, and that was their sermon. Well, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. We don't we don't believe that that ought to be incorporated into our worship services. Those are outside of what God has prescribed for worship. And that was one of the reasons why I ended up leaving that church, because they were moving in that direction. <clears throat> and, um, and I didn't believe that that was right. I believe what our confession states, that God is to be worshipped the way he himself has prescribed we don't invent our ways to worship God. And we, when, when we worship God, we've got to make sure that we are worshiping Him according to what the Scriptures prescribe and not according to our own imagination or devices or ideas, however clever and attractive they might be to the world. <clears throat> so we believe in the regulative principle as Reformed a Reformed Church. And then, sixthly, we believe to, that we need to emphasize love for neighbor, personal godliness, and care for the marginalized or the poor and needy. Now, this was something that was actually characteristic of the Reformed Churches in distinction from Roman Catholicism. Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses argued that the abuses of the medieval church, particularly the sale of indulgences, were wrong not only because they lacked a basis in Scripture, but also because they wrongly elevated earthly wealth in place of genuine piety, 
through the sale of indulgences, etc. And because concern for the poor was not something that was emphasized and taken um, seriously by the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, they would take advantage of the poor by selling them indulgences and saying that they could get their loved ones out of purgatory or um, lesser punishment in purgatory by purchasing these indulgences. And so the Roman, Roman Catholic Church was opposed by the, the Protestants, the, the Reformers. Calvin, by the way, you know, people, Calvin has kind of a bad name in some circles, but you know, Calvin's Geneva, he was the leader in the city of Geneva. And um, Calvin's Geneva became famous for systematic care for the poor and the refugees, those who were refugees because they were being persecuted for their faith, etc. They became famous for how they cared for the poor. You know, if you, were, if you were poor and you were being persecuted for your faith, you knew, I could go to, I could go to Calvin City. I could go to Cal, the city where Calvin is so influential because they will take care of the poor there. They will, ref, they will receive refugees there. The Reformed churches were known for their love, for emphasizing personal godliness, for care for those who were marginalized and and poor and needy. And thus, Reformed theology has historically taught the need for personal devotion to Christ. It's not an outward ritual. It is personal devotion to Christ. And for faithful and loving concern for the church and for the world. So this is also what characterizes Reformed theology and what we desire to characterize this church. Reformed theology is also, I'm going to have to rush through this, also characterized by what is called covenant theology. Uh, this whew, We could take a whole series of sermons on this. The Reformers developed the doctrine of God's covenant with humanity in order to emphasize both God's gracious sovereignty in salvation, the God is sovereign in salvation, as well as the proper response um, of the person saved by grace. And again, we don't have time to go into that in detail. But the idea is that uh, while there are somewhat differing views of God's covenant among even Reformed theologians, nevertheless, they all see God's working out his plan of salvation, his sovereign plan of salvation, the plan of salvation by grace, <clears throat> his plan of redemption. You see that God working that out throughout history, throughout the redemptive history, by means of the covenants. That God has established a series of covenants, and by those covenants, <clears throat> and by, he is going to accomplish his salvation. And that is how, what we see in the scriptures. And we don't, again, we don't have time to go into that in detail. And then, <clears throat> eighthly, what has characterized covenant theology is often um, termed predestination as, as a characteristic of Reformed theology. Reformed theology has historically been identified with, with the doctrine of predestination. If, if somebody knows a little bit about this, oh, you're Reformed, then you believe in predestination, right? And, and we say, well, yeah, it's in the Bible. <clears throat> um, and so we might even think, well, if you're evangelical, why wouldn't you say you believe in predestination? But a lot of, there are some who are evangelical who would not say they believe in predestination because they don't think they really understand it. But anyway, this doctrine teaches that in eternity past, God chose a people for himself. 
He has predestined them to eternal life and has predestined the means by which they will be saved. The rest of mankind he has left to freely act in their, own, in their sin to their own just condemnation. But many passages of scripture, I've got them listed there, teach um, predestination and we hold to that. And just as a kind of clarification, those who hold that God has elected a people for salvation still believe that the sinner makes a decision to trust God, and it is a genuine act of the human will. God regenerates the sinner and grants him the ability to repent and trust Christ. And yet, the human will is ultimately, and and therefore the human will is ultimately contingent upon the will of God. And nevertheless, when a human being makes the decision to trust Christ, that human will freely believes in God, freely believes in God. And there's mystery here, to be sure. You weren't forced, as I saw a picture of a sword in somebody's back, um, forcing him to believe. No, you, you come freely because God has given you the will to come. But we have to heed John Calvin's warning here when we think about those who are elect to avoid speculating about things which God has not revealed. He has not revealed who the elect are. And Calvin says to speculate on the identity of God's elect is foolish and dangerous, nay, even deadly. We don't go around speculating who the elect are. We know that God knows and we trust him. And so our response, actually, to the doctrine of predestination ought to be one of humble, grateful, and humility, gratitude, and being bold in sharing the gospel because we know that God is going to save his elect. So in summary, then, Heritage Baptist Church is evangelical, we are Baptist, and we are Reformed. We hold to the above doctrines, that is, evangelical, Baptist, and Reformed doctrines, not because we feel bound by any particular tradition, nor because we are fettered by a particular confession of faith. But we hold to the doctrines that can be called evangelical, Baptist, and Reformed because, because these doctrines we believe to be the very teachings of the Word of God. We hold them because the the scriptures teach them and the scriptures are God's word. And so we say, sola scriptura. We believe these things because they are taught in the word of God and we want to give God the glory, soli deo gloria. Any questions before we conclude? David? And the priesthood of the believer? Was that the, I don't know, that Roman numeral there? Okay, probably under the priesthood of the believer where that, I think that would fit in. And that is, yeah, the Lord has um, given to each individual certain spiritual gifts. And therefore, under the priesthood of the believer, we don't believe that there's a, a major distinction between the clergy and the laity. Um, there's not a, a unique class. We have pastors. We recognize that we need pastors. We need church officers. But they are still at the same level 
as all the other church members when it comes to our status before God and our privilege before God. Uh, we are functioning with different gifts. You might have the gift of administration. You might have a gift of music or something, and you use that gift in a way that honors the Lord, just as one who is gifted by the Lord to be a pastor or an elder uses his gift uh, for the edification of the body. But they are not a special class of people um, who, who have special rights before God that we don't have. Does that answer your question? Or? Yeah, um, well, we're going to be talking about Pentecostal theology in the future. But, um, yeah, they, they believe in a certain, sometimes uh, a second work of grace, so to speak, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit upon you. There's, there's varieties even among charismatics. So, um, but they would, not, they would not elevate, I think, a certain class of people in the same sense that the Roman Catholics would elevate the priests. Okay, well, our time is up. I've got to let you go, and I know people are having to get out to get your kids. But um, let's, uh, I hope you'll come next week. I'll give you more of a justification for why we are covering some of these other theologies that we're going to be covering, why the Scriptures give us warrant for doing that. So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. We're thankful that you have made us your children, not based on what we have done, but based on what Christ has done. And so, Lord, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.